Does your God meet the needs of the weary? Yeah. But can your God also change the hearts of the powerful, the political, the elites? Or do you line up with the accusation that, well, the Spirit works in really needy situations because they're really broken people and, and they have a lot of needs, but, I mean, the prominent people, the, the privileged people, they don't, they don't really need Jesus. They have everything else going on. And is, is that what you believe, that Jesus is just what you choose when you run out of options? When you get to the end of your rope, well, there's Jesus, right? Today, we're, we're going to actually look at a man full of options at the top of the power structures. His name was Cornelius, and he's in a city called Caesarea. Just turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We'll look at the first eight verses and then the next eight. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, well, yes, what is it, sir? Yes, sir. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms, that's the, the gifts to the poor, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, part of his household, and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, this is a fascinating little segment of the story here in the middle of the book of Acts. Go find Peter, Cornelius. You need to go find him. And so he's in Caesarea. What do we know about that? Well, we know it was a model Roman city built by Herod the Great to honor Augustus Caesar, including a temple to worship him. That's an imperial temple. It had all the statues in this city, all the temples, the sports complexes, the theaters. It had Roman power on display. Remember the Pax Romana, all the soldiers keeping the peace over the province of Judea. So they're out there on the coast, and then looking inland, they ruled that region. And here we have Cornelius. He's a decorated, trusted military leader over hundreds of soldiers. He's a, he's a Gentile living in a significant Gentile city and was a prominent and privileged member of Roman society. But he was different than his society, wasn't he? He ran his household differently in the fear of Yahweh. His respect and admiration for Yahweh, the creator of all, and the God of Israel actually showed in his whole life and, and in his work. His work was informed by his worship. And his accolades didn't just come from Rome. If you remember the story before this, um, there was Tabitha. She's applauded by all the widows in Joppa. But, but here Luke takes care to note that, that God has taken notice. Yahweh has taken notice of this man's devotion. And, and one wonders if, if the story is important to Luke, not just... Because, oh, it's what happened. But 
but it's a pivotal point in the message going to the nations. And, and also because the recipient of this work, uh, the work of this historical research that he was going to do, remember it was to a man named Theophilus, lover of God. And maybe Theophilus needs to know that he's not the only lover of God among the Romans who's being reached out to by God Almighty. These alms and, and his gifts to the poor had risen, it said, like a memorial offering. The memorial offering in, in Judaism, in, in the Torah, was a, a share of the grain harvest that's, that's given to just to remind, remind all of Israel that, that the whole harvest is God's. Maybe that's why you give. You, know, you give a little, a little bit. You give maybe 10% of, of your wealth um, right off the top, just to remind, remind yourself that this is all God's in the first place. So, in this case, this memorial offering of a harvest is kind of an interesting term to use. It might be that, in this case, Cornelius and his family are also kind of the first part of a new harvest that Jesus is about to bring in, a new Gentile harvest. We have some interesting connections there. But maybe you're curious about this, as I was. Why would Cornelius turn to Yahweh? In some sense, the local deity. In the midst of power and prestige and privilege and a model Roman port city, you're, you're right at the top of the heap. I mean, if you, if you have to live out a story, why the story of Israel and not Rome? Right? Why, why the one at the bottom of the heap with this local deity? I mean, the Roman story was winning the day. The temples were established, and if you played along, you might just get to stay on top. <laughs> Keep bringing your donations to the imperial temple where Caesar Augustus was honored, and, and feast along with all the other gods and goddesses that lived large in the story of Rome. What is it about Yahweh? that has made this decorated warrior decide to side with the local population. He's gone native. <laughs> What's going on, Cornelius? He does charity and he's, he's devout. And that doesn't fit our stereotypes of a centurion, of a Roman at the top of the heap. But it's also true that that's what some of you were, living at the top of your story. And then God calls to you and you respond. Of course, we could say that as Americans, we're at kind of the top of the cultural heap as well. And so we're found there. Maybe, maybe we could say that, that we don't have as much money as, as the richest of the rich. But according to the rest of the world, we are the richest of the rich, right? Some of you were, in that sense, kind of at the top of the heap over others. And some of you were living under the, the rubble caused by the destructive tendencies of others. And I think we, we want to look at Cornelius and and maybe we, we could we could start a little debate over what his good works did to motivate the heart of God, you know, to bring out uh, bring him to this point of allegiance to Jesus. But for Luke, as as Dean Pinter points out, the interest is not on what the role of Cornelius' prayers and his piety may or may not have served as merit before God. Cornelius is actually portrayed 
as being responsible for what he does and what he knows from being associated with Judaism. So he's saying, okay, I watch and I observe what's going on in and among these Jewish people, and I, I want to take part in that as best as possible, even though he's clearly an outsider. So I, I think there's a principle in here. You know, we know that God is light, and he intends to illuminate and reveal. So what will you do with the light that you've been given? Right? What will you do with the light that you've been given? Will you seek more light? Well, it seems Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the creator of all, encourages that sort of thing. Right? If you seek the light, he will give you more light. Maybe we could be praying that right now for, for those that we love, that they would seek the light and that God would be gracious in receiving them. I mean, Cornelius is responding to the light that he sees among the Jewish people around him. And now he's going to have an encounter with Peter. And Peter is now going to be tested by his own revelation. What will Peter do with the light that's given to him? In Cornelius, we have a man who's obedient, even though he's an outsider. And, and in Peter, we have an insider being tested to see if he'll respond. So let's look at the next part of this passage, Acts 10, 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. So the, the two household servants, the devout servants, and the one devout soldier are coming to meet with Peter. Peter's on the housetop. Remember, this is at Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Um, it's so, I think, critical that, that a tanner lives by the sea. A huge advantage to have some fresh air flowing uh, by his house. I, I've had the chance to visit this famous tannery in, in the old Medina in Fez, Morocco. And wow, as you walk up the stairs to that lookout, you'll see right there on the top right, they give you mint leaves to hold up to your nose because it is so terrible. There's no pretending. This place just reeks. And I'm imagining Peter as he falls asleep at this Tanner's house. Um, you know, what you might dream about as you as you fell into a sleep. So it says Peter went onto this housetop and about the sixth hour at noon to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. A trance. This is a, it's an interesting word, and I want to help you unpack it. Um, ecstasis, you know, kind of ecstasy, this idea of, um, of revelation, but it's, but it's not quite the same thing as a dream, and it's not the same as like wild flipping out on a, on a seizure. This is a, clearly a God-initiated experience to reveal something about God's plans for humanity. The word ecstasis can, can refer to a deep sleep, and that's what we're looking at here, a deep sleep. And, and in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's just some little breadcrumbs to follow, um, it refers to, when, when it's referring to this deep sleep in this way, there's a Hebrew word, tardama, that, that, keep, that gets used. And, and there's two places where tardama is used with really huge significance. Okay. So there's a little bit of Greek, then to Hebrew, there's a, there's a connection there. But there's two places where this word is used like that. And it's in Genesis 2.21. This is where uh, the Adam, 
the human, the original human, is placed in a deep sleep. And this is when the plan for humanity is for the one to become two. Right? When the human is made into man and woman. Now, you're probably saying, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. It was, it was, he took, it was a man. He took a rib and then the rib was made into a woman. Well, that's not actually the way the Hebrew works there. What we're looking at here is the human is, is taken and, and it says he's put into this deep sleep, this, this trance, the same word. And, and it's not so much a rib being removed as a side removed, one side being removed. <laughs> some weird imagery, but the side of that, of the human is removed, and from that two are being made. So not so much a rib, although there's that's a possible translation. Uh, it's more likely the side. He's split in two, and a man and woman. Of course, then we know the two uh, become one flesh again, and out from that come more humans. Right. So you you have this um, beautiful this image of this deep sleep that God has initiated because there's something new that's going to happen with humanity. Well, and then it happens one more time in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. This is when Abraham goes into a deep sleep. It's in the middle of this covenant ceremony, which is very unique. Um, hey, bring the animals, split them in two. And then God has Abraham fall into a, a tr deep trance. And God makes this covenant at this pivotal point in human history with the one family. And he's going to give them the land for them to flourish. I will give you this covenant. And is it a, is it a coincidence that in this ceremony, the animals are, are killed? Not, not the humans split in two, but the, but the animals split in two. Well, that's interesting to me anyway. Uh, the Jewish person, let's just say this, reading the story uh, in line with the great covenants of Adam and Abraham wouldn't miss this. That, that Peter is having a major God-initiated vision about God's plans for the human race. Like Adam and, and Abraham, God is revealing a huge shift in the story. Okay, so he falls into this trance, right? And that saw the heavens open and something like a, a great sail or a sheet descending being let down on its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, Rise, Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And, and Peter said, Oh, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean don't call common. So this happens three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Three times. So Peter's confused by this vision. And, and it'll become clear to him that uh, what's, what's going on because there's going to be a knock at the door pretty soon. And next week we'll look at this other section. But for now, I think we can just see uh, a few things clearly. Peter is bound up in the story of Yahweh. Good for him. He's, he's, a, he's a Yahweh person. Cornelius is hoping he can be part of that story. And we can see he's made some decisions to, to move from the Roman story to identify with, with God. They lived in their household as, under the fear of Yahweh. But Cornelius is always going to be an outsider to the story of Yahweh, right? Well, Peter's about to have this world opened up 
his own vision of the world just opened up and Cornelius is about to step into it. It's a very, very great moment. In fact, Luke is, is making clear that, that God is preparing the way just super carefully, step by step. You've got the double vision of, of Cornelius seeing an angel telling him to go to Peter, Peter seeing this sail or sheet full of unclean animals and is told to eat, and this double vision is coming together. The point for Peter is that, Peter, you've been treating food the same way you treat people. Some is clean, some is pure, some is unclean, some is impure. Some people are unclean and impure, and, and no, I don't want to associate with them. Peter gets it. He knows the boundaries, right? And, and he, he hasn't done anything to, to step over, over those lines. Like, like Ezekiel, one of these prophets of old, he, he says, no, I've never touched this stuff. I've never done anything uh, to go against these boundaries, never transgressed. Dean Pinter says the, the, the voice from heaven responds emphatically, the things that God declares ceremonially clean, you, Peter, should not consider unclean. He's, it's very pointed, it's emphatic, right at Peter. Peter, you could not be more wrong in your judgment. Well, it would take a vision to, to, to move a guy like Peter off that perspective. But Peter's not alone, is he? Being wrong in judgment about people. Have you ever, have you ever been wrong in judgment? Raise your hand, everybody. Uh, yeah, yeah, so much. There are people that pass our way that, that we think are out of range of the love of God. Completely out of range. Whether that's some celebrity or a politician, like maybe way far away, or people up close or neighbors or family members. You're just like, it's not that God doesn't love them, we would say. Of course, of course he loves them, but he just can't do much with them. There's, just, there's, nothing, there's nothing there that he can do. Maybe they're too low in society or, or too high in society. They're, they're so, so down low and destitute that nothing could really be made of their lives. Or they have everything going for them, like maybe we might say Cornelius, and so they don't really need Jesus, right? God only works with average people, and God only does average things, right? We, we couldn't be more wrong. And so I've got a couple applications. One application is for the Peters. <laughs> Don't you do it. Don't you call common and impure what God is calling to be his own. Don't, don't you step in the way. I'm reminded of Jesus' question to these two blind men as he walked by. Matthew 9, 27 through 30. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Do you believe that Jesus can draw people to himself? That he can rescue them? Or are they too far gone? Too low to be de dealt with, too high to be affected by Jesus. God only works in this middle range. I'm being challenged as a Peter that I need to realize that God can draw anyone to himself. And I think for me, this, brings, this story brings up a lot of questions about what God thinks about those who aren't yet insiders to the family of God. Maybe what, what has God done in the past with honest 
seekers. And apparently there are such people who are pursuing Yahweh, seeking the light, wanting more, responding to the light that they're given, and then God gives them more light. Apparently this is happening. Another question is, of, of what will God do with those who have never heard the message of Jesus? Yeah, what about those that have, that have never heard? What's God going to do with those? Well, we see a bit of the heart of God, and, and let's not give up on God. Let's not give up on his heart for the masses. There's also an application for Cornelius's, <laughs> for those of us who are, are maybe like Cornelius. In, at least in this sense, you, you, don't, you don't know what, what you don't know. You don't know all, everything about God. You don't know what maybe your next steps are supposed to be. You don't necessarily know, but, but what are you doing with what you do know? Because that's what's so amazing about Cornelius is he did, he did not know everything yet, but he just responded to what he was given, and he was obedient to that. Can you, can you like Cornelius, say, I know enough to start obeying right now? I know enough about God I know enough about Jesus to start obeying right now. Right? Cornelius really puts us in our place. He would have loved to know more about Yahweh, more about Jesus. But he just obeyed with the information that he had. You know, and we're big in this culture on, um, on, on learning. You know, a disciple is a learner. Well, that's very true. That's a great definition. But it's also more of an apprentice, right, <laughs> who puts it into practice. We're more into this learning-based discipleship model. I think we could admit to that. You know, just another class, just another lesson, another study, and then we'll be that disciple that God really wants us to be, pleasing to God. Well, Jesus did say to make disciples, teaching them, Right, that part fits our model. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Whoa. Well, there's learning there, but, but certainly we're not intended to learn everything Jesus ever taught that would fill the entire universe with all sorts of lessons to learn. No, it's teach them to obey. It's teaching a posture of obedience. That's a that's an obedience-based discipleship model. And we see Cornelius saying, I'm just going to do what I know. And if God wants, if God would let me have more information, then I will immediately obey it. Cornelius understands, sir, yes, sir. I will obey. So, humbly, <laughs> I hope, I'll ask you, what, what will you do with what you already know? Well, I just have these questions that are still out there about Jesus. Uh, I'm not really sure how to, the theory of atonement works that I submit. I'm not really sure about what will you do with what you do now? Will you seek him? What will you do with the light that God has already revealed? I know this. You know enough to start obeying now. Okay, that, that's what I want to share with you today. But there's, there's a more important application point than anything I could dial up and deliver to you. Okay, and that's where I want to close today. What is the Spirit telling you to do in obedience to Him this week? Take, take a moment and write that down. That's as in, more important than anything. Take, it, take a moment, write that down, and then do it. And yes, we're discovering an obedience-based discipleship model and so we will support you and, and help you if you need it. But that, again, that's just the most important thing. Go back through any sermon, anything we do, and just re-ask that question. 
what is the Spirit telling me to do? And then do it.